This evening's reading is from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 to 16, and can be found on page 1212 in the Church Bibles. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are turned are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his bearing the disgrace he bore. For, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's remarkable how driven we can be in the Western world by a desire for comfort, for respectability, for a, a safe life, even to rather ridiculous lengths. And this was brought home to me by a somewhat trivial uh, example that happened last week. For those who don't know me, I'm training to be a vicar over at Ridley Hall, so currently a student, um, which basically means that right now I'm able to enjoy the lovely long summer vacation. And one day last week, I was sat in my living room as people were hurrying past on their way to work, uh, just relaxing, reading my Bible, sat in my pyjamas. And then there was a noise outside. I looked up and saw a woman had fallen off her bike. Now, the obvious thing to do would be to rush straight outside and see if she needed any help. But I'm ashamed to say I hesitated. Why did I hesitate? For the most ridiculous of reasons, I was still in my pajamas and felt embarrassed to go outside. So I hesitated. I looked to see if she seemed all right and I saw some other people coming to her aid, so I thought well, maybe I wasn't needed after all. And I was just about to retreat to the comfort, the safety of staying indoors when I noticed that the people who had stopped were carrying bags and jackets they were just passers-by. What if she needed a glass of water or some bandages or something? So I realized I did have to go out. I had to overcome my pride and go out in my pajamas. Unfortunately, I did, as she was actually in quite a bad way and did need some help. Now, we may all have different feelings about wearing pajamas outside, whatever it is, but I'd imagine for most of us, we too often lead lives that prioritize our comfort and we fail to lead lives of radical love and generosity, let alone, if we are Christians here this evening, lives that boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We stay, as it were, inside, rather than choosing to take the risk of going outside to serve, to proclaim the Lord Jesus. 
We have few friends outside church because we're embarrassed about our faith. Or we're slow to speak up about our faith because we fear being laughed at or ridiculed. We don't have that difficult conversation we know we ought to have because it's just safer, it's more comfortable to keep quiet. We don't invite the new neighbours round for tea, showing them Christian hospitality because it's so much effort to initiate friendship and you don't know how they might take it. It'd be much easier, much safer just to stay inside. I'm sure we could multiply examples. But this inclination most of us feel towards the comfortable, the safe life is challenged by our passage this evening. Let me read again verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Following Christ means following his path of suffering and disgrace, not leading a life that is comfortable and safe. And so the basic question I think this passage is asking of us this evening is this. Is the way you live as a Christian too comfortable, too safe? Are you being so controlled by a desire for comfort, for a desire to avoid embarrassment, a desire for a safe life, that you're not truly living the life that Jesus called you to. It's my prayer this evening that as we delve into this passage, we will not only see what it looks like to follow Jesus' path of suffering and disgrace, but more importantly, we will see something of the beauty of such a life. So as we come to God's word now, let me pray for us. Loving Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Soften our hearts and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the summer, we've been slowly working our way through this final chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the letter, but it seems to have been written to Christians from a primarily Jewish background who are very familiar with the Old Testament and the rituals of the Jewish temple. And it seems that these Christians, uh, these are Christians who may have been coming under some pressure from their families, from their old communities, not to give up on their ancestral traditions and rituals. They are, if you like, tempted to live a safe life of social conformity. And what the author of this letter has been trying to argue all the way through is that in Jesus, all those traditions, all those rituals find their ultimate and true fulfillment. He urges them not to return to those old ways, but to embrace all that God has done for us in Christ. And so as he draws his letter to a close, in this final chapter, the writer presents a series of instructions and exhortations. And the point seems to be that given all that has been said about Jesus so far, well, this is the implication for how we are to live the Christian life. And he urges them not to live a comfortable life of social conformity, but a cross-centered life, 
a life that flows from and is shaped by all that Jesus has done for us in Christ. And in our verses, he draws our attention to two particular facets of the cross-centered life. First, the disgrace of bearing his name, and second, the sacrifice of showing his love. So look at both of those in turn. So first of all, verses 11 to 14, the disgrace of bearing his name. Now, verse 11 takes us perhaps rather abruptly straight into the world of the Old Testament sacrifices. We read, uh, verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. This might seem quite alien for many of us. Here the writer is taking us back to the Day of Atonement, an annual ritual in which a bull and a goat were sacrificed by the high priest as an act of atonement for the sins of the people. The sacrifice was completed by the blood of the animals being brought up to the most holy place of the temple, the place which symbolically represented where God dwelt with his people. And such sacrifices had been provided by God as a means of enabling a sinful people to find mercy, grace, and forgiveness from a God of justice and holiness. I guess it might seem primitive, even barbaric to us today, but it nonetheless speaks powerfully of the gravity of human sin, the seriousness of living in God's world by rejecting him as Lord of our lives. We shouldn't treat that lightly, but in his grace, God provided the Day of Atonement as a means by which Sinful people could acknowledge that sin and its seriousness before him and then experience the joy of forgiveness and reconciliation with their Heavenly Father. Now, the writer's already spoken at length early in the letter, particularly if you want to look later, chapters 9 and 10, about how this Day of Atonement found its true and perfect fulfillment in the death of Jesus Christ. No animal can truly represent us before God. And the fact that this sacrifice had to take place every year demonstrated just how imperfect it was at dealing with the problem of human sin. And this is what he's underlining, I think, particularly in this verse. He focuses on the fact that the bodies of the animals were subsequently burned outside the camp. And the burning seems to signify that after they'd performed the duty of bearing the people's sin, well, they were just disposed of outside the city, highlighting ultimately their limited ability to really cleanse the people from their sin. And so it's then that we get the wonder of verse 12, reading, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. In the very place where the old sacrificial victims were burned as a final testimony to their ultimate inability to provide true cleansing for sin, in that very place, Jesus was similarly considered little more than trash to be disposed of, rejected by his own people, condemned as a criminal, mocked, 
jeered at, whipped and beaten. But in that very place, he made the perfect, complete, sufficient sacrifice for sin. Such was God's determination to be truly and fully reconciled to us. Such was his yearning to truly and fully forgive us that he came in the person of Jesus to take upon himself all our sin and shame, enduring all the disgrace, all the torment of the cross, that we, if we embrace and receive what he has done for us, might be made holy, might be finally set free from our sins and restored to the relationship with him for which we were made. And so whilst we must never underestimate the gravity of sin, nor should we ever underestimate the completeness of God's forgiveness in Christ, there is nothing we could ever do that could wipe away that guilt of sin. But in his sacrifice for us, Christ has done it all. God looks at us through Jesus and sees only those who have been made holy. Whatever it is you have done, whatever guilt you bear, in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven it all. The point that the writer is making through all this is that if Jesus has won for you complete and perfect forgiveness through his death on the cross, such that you are now holy in God's sight, why return to those old traditions and rituals, which were only ever temporary remedies to heal the relationship between God and his people? When that woman fell off her bike last week, I gave her a tea towel to stem the flow of blood. I take it at the hospital, she was properly stitched up and sent on her way, but imagine how ridiculous it would be if she later came round and asked for another tea towel for her stitched-up wound. The wound has been perfectly stitched up, it's been fully dealt with. Why come back for another bandage? And I suppose the author of Hebrews is making a similar point. Christ has fully dealt with your sin. So why go back to the sticking plasters? But of course, the reason why these Christians were returning for those sticking plasters was because remaining in the traditions and rituals, keeping the sacrifices, was a place of seeming comfort and safety, the reassurance of the familiar, the acceptance of their communities. And because embracing the radical implications of all that Jesus has done for us very often entailed being the bearing the disgrace of rejection by their families and former communities. And so the writer urges, he exhorts, he pleads with these faltering Christians, these Christians tempted to follow a comfortable, safe life, to fully embrace all that Christ has done for them, whatever the cost may be. And then we get to verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. If we want to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared to go where he went, which was leaving comfort and safety, going to a place of disgrace and rejection. Not that we seek out such a place, 
but that we're prepared to suffer even what he suffered for boldly following him as our Lord and Saviour. Prepared to suffer ridicule and mockery for going to church rather than keeping quiet about faith and avoiding public embarrassment. Prepared to suffer scorn for following Christian moral teaching rather than the more comfortable path of social conformity. Prepared to suffer rejection at work for refusing to go along with corrupt practices rather than the safe path that would ensure job security. Well, it's all well and good to say this, isn't it? But such decisions are far from easy in practice. But I think there are three encouragements in these verses that can help us. Firstly, if my Lord went to the place of rejection and disgrace, then I can follow with confidence that he is with me. He knows the path I take. I do not take that path alone. Secondly, if I've been made holy by God and restored to my relationship with him, what is disgrace and rejection from the world when we have such honour and acceptance from God? And thirdly, in Christ we have a far greater safety and comfort than the world can ever provide. You see that in verse 14, for here we do not have an enduring city. That is, despite appearances, there is nothing in this world that is permanent or stable, which can provide true security. But we are looking for the city that is to come, our true comfort, our true security, our true home. because of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for us, because on the cross he accomplished everything for us, we can have complete confidence that the inevitable disgrace of bearing his name is ultimately more than worth the cost. So that's the first facet, then, of a cross-centered life, the, the disgrace of bearing his name. The second, looking at verses 15 to 16, the sacrifice of showing his love. The sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has further implications. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, that's not through the mediation of any priest, but through Jesus, who has made the perfect reconciliation between us and God. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice, not of bulls and goats, those are needed no more, since because Jesus has made that perfect sacrifice for sin, we have been fully forgiven, fully restored to God. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice, not of animals, but of praise. And then in verse 16, a sacrifice of doing good and sharing with others. These are not sacrifices that earn God's favor, that win his approval. For as we've seen, that is already securely ours in Christ. These are sacrifices of a very different kind. Sacrifices only in the sense of something that we bring to God, only and entirely, as a joyful response to what he has done for us. So in verse 15, we have the sacrifice of praise. 
if we fully grasp the reality of all that Jesus has done for us, our hearts should be fully should be full of joyful songs of praise. But but more than that, these should not be private songs. The praise is further described as the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. We should be praising God to our friends, our families, our colleagues. It's, it's funny, isn't it, that we can get so animated singing the praises of our favourite uh, football team. Uh, not that I have one, but um, or our favourite TV show, our boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe even our spouse. But we're reluctant to speak of the God who loves us with a love infinitely better than any love we have ever known, who has done infinitely more for us than anyone else, who at some point in the past we decided to commit our lives to, precisely because we thought him to be altogether beautiful and wonderful. Why is that? Well, maybe it's partly because of what we were thinking about earlier, fear of putting our head above the parapet, of leaving the comfort and security of anonymity for the disgrace and ridicule of being identified as a Christian. In which case, again, we need to learn to go where Christ went. But maybe it's also in part that we've not fully grasped down here in our heart just how amazing our God is. So can I encourage us, and I very much include myself in this, to really make sure that we're spending time each day meditating on God, delighting afresh in him, reminding ourselves of who he is and what he has done. The more our hearts are warmed with love for him, the more we will feel compelled to speak of him to others. So the sacrifice of praise, and then verse 16, finally, we have the sacrifices of good works and generosity. So we read, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So if the first sacrifice was about our relationship with God, the second is about our relationship with our neighbour, with those around us doing good work, sharing what we have with those in need, acting in everything in love. And God is pleased with such sacrifices. But again, good works are not done to earn God's pleasure or favor. God is pleased with them, like a teacher, not like a teacher writing end-of-term reports, but like a parent who already loves their child more than they could know, delighting in the good things that their son or daughter has done. But nor does that mean that doing good, loving our neighbour, is an optional extra to be reduced to a merely convenient one good deed a day. For I think that's still to have inhabited the re- not to have inhabited the reality of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. One good deed a day might make us feel better about ourselves, but it's keeping our service, keeping our love within the limits of convenience. 
and therefore ultimately still holding on to worldly comforts. It doesn't recognize that Jesus, through his sacrifice, has and does give us everything, all the comfort we could ever need. Every comfort, every security is already ours in Christ. Because, uh, but we do good works precisely because we have everything we need in Christ. Because we have everything we need, all we can do is to give. Or we can, and we can do good works that are genuinely good and loving because we do not do them to get anything out of them, any, even any fleeting moment of um, feeling better about ourselves. Instead, we can follow the example of our Lord himself who gave up all the glory of heaven, gave his very life for you and me. This is how Martin Luther puts it in a a short book I I thoroughly recommend um, called The Freedom of a Christian. He writes this, I will give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what is profitable, necessary, and life-giving for my neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of of all good things in Christ. So, where are we settling for a safe, comfortable Christian life? Because we're concerned we won't get much out of it, or because we'll only be rejected or laughed at, or because it's just so much easier not to have to bother. In short, because we don't realise all that we have in Christ. Where do we need to be bolder? To leave the house, to to sacrifice time or money for those in need, to be a Christ to a neighbour. I'll finish with some further words from Luther. He goes on. From love there proceeds a joyful, willing and free mind that serves the neighbour and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, praise or blame, gain or loss. We do not serve others with an eye toward them, toward making them obligated to us. Nor do we distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or ingratitude. Rather, we freely and willingly spend ourselves and all that we have. None of this, however, we can do in our own strength. So, as we close, let me pray. Loving Father, we thank and praise you that we have all that we need in Christ, that his sacrifice for us completely and perfectly restored us to you. Help us so fully to grasp all that you have given to us, that we might be willing to leave the comfortable, safe life and boldly, by the strength of your Spirit, bear the disgrace he bore and offer sacrifices of praise and love to you.
In Jesus' name, amen. And we'll